It's been a, a long wait for me to be able to share this series with you. I've been so eager to get into this series on the Sermon of the Mount uh, because I don't know about you, but I'm I'm ready for a revolution. The uh, brokenness of this world breaks my heart, and especially this month as we see our very culture uh, really thumbing its nose at God and at just some people it makes them sad me how God works in my heart it just makes me angry uh, and I guess there's some godliness in that but the Lord is working on me to give me compassion too which is good uh, but when when the world lifts a hand against God under a banner of pride and says we will do what's opposite what is offensive to you we will we will break all of your commands, and we're going to do that, and we're going to do that under a banner of the rainbow, which was given by God to remind us that he won't destroy the world again by water, that, that we're saying to God, you can't touch us, we're going to do what we want, forgetting the fact that we serve an almighty God, and we should bow our knees in fear because he will judge the world with fire. And it makes me angry as God's follower when the enemies of God gain traction. And I see in our government, and I see in the world, I see all kinds of injustices where the poor are being oppressed by the, by the wealthy, by those with political power, get away with all kinds of horrible things, while, while others, they don't get away with nothing. When I see the brokenness in this world, when there's so many who starve, when there's so many who, who hurt, and the world seems against them and crushes them, I am ready for a revolution. Are you And then I come to Jesus, the greatest revolutionary of all time. And I recognize that he didn't come to just let the world be. That Jesus was angry and God was angry. There is a wrath of God against the sin and brokenness of humanity that is ferocious. I draw a little bit of, of hope. Because I recognize that God is also not okay with the way of the world is. But God's revolution is different than mine. Praise God that it's different than how I would do things. Because I would be just as wicked and evil as everything that I claim to stand against. You know, when Jesus came, he, uh, he showed up in a world not to leave it like it ever was, but to institute a whole new kingdom, a whole new way of life, a whole new kind of righteousness that had never been experienced before in, in the entire world, the greatest revolution the world had ever seen. It toppled even the mighty Roman Empire. It toppled thousands of years of, of religion that had no ability to change the heart from the inside out. Jesus did a lot of things. And when he showed up, he showed up as what was known as Messiah, right? And, and the Jewish people knew this because they expected the Messiah. They've been waiting for hundreds of years. God promised that he would bring them one. And when Jesus showed up and he started doing the things the prophets proclaimed that a Messiah would do, in their mind they had this expectation of the Messiah, that he was going to bring about a revolution much like Moses did. 
to lead them out of the promised land, much like Joshua did when he led them into the promised land and he, and he destroyed all of the wicked kingdoms before them. They had in their mind a Messiah that would be very much like the Hasmoneans who came in under the banner of called the Maccabees, which means the hammers, who just smacked down the, the oppressive and wicked Greek and destroyed them and kicked them out of the land. They expected a, a Messiah who was going to be political, who was going to change culture and the world, so finally God's people would have a place where they were no longer humiliated. Finally, God's people would have a culture in which they felt comfortable in, which we would finally feel at home. That they felt that, that this Messiah was going to come and break the, the bonds of all of the, the brokenness of this world. They were so excited for this Messiah, and they expected him to come with, in military power to bring about a kingdom in power that would force the nations to their knees, and they were ready for it. Do you ever pray like me that God would just do that? Because it's so frustrating for me. That we pray, we work, and we serve, and all these things, and yet we still see, doesn't it seem like the devil is having his day right now? I think just like those who Jesus first came to, a lot of us are, are just begging for a Savior, a Messiah. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> I have allergies. I don't know if any of you have that. Part of this broken world. Man, the pollen has been crazy. And I took some Sudafed today, so I'm all jittery and my mouth is dry. <laughs> I'm also excited because Sudafed does that. So here's the deal. We want a Messiah. And we have a Messiah. But let's not forget who the Messiah is. He's in charge. And the Sermon on the Mount, which we, we begin to, is Jesus' declaration of God's kingdom. It's an amazing declaration where Jesus shows up and he begins by telling the people, this is the way that God's kingdom is going to be. It's the manifesto of the kingdom of God. It was the announcement of a great revolution, but it was a revolution of revival. It's so different than how anything had ever happened before. And it's why we want to go this summer through that amazing declaration. It gives us purpose and it gives us hope. It makes sure that we're not fighting our own silly revolutions. And we saw the Jews try to do that in 70 AD and it didn't work so well. And we've seen the church try to do that many, many times to, to bring about God's kingdom in our own power, in our own way. And it doesn't work so well. But Jesus' revolution is powerful. And we need to make sure we're on side of the Messiah, that we're following Jesus, not asking him to follow us. The, the Sermon on the Mount has been known and is undisputed. It is the most important message ever delivered to humankind. It has changed the world more than any other sermon, any other message, any other speech ever has. It has altered the, horse, the, the course of all of history. And so we do well to listen to it and then to bring ourselves into alignment with it. And so that's what we're going to be doing this summer. Now, our anchor verse for this series is really important. It happens at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. You have to stick around for 12 weeks to get to where we're going to exegete this. But I think you can kind of understand it even here. Because Jesus ends the sermon. Here's the so what. Here's the, here's the punchline at the end. This is the thing that all the sermon leads to is this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And I want us to understand this, that Jesus didn't just come to give a declaration. He came with an invitation. He came with an expectation that if you follow him, you're going to be part of what he's doing, then we actually obey him. We don't just know what he asked, but we actually do it. And if we don't, we're not very wise. But if you hear these words of Christ over these next 12 weeks and you hearken to them and you begin to bring your life into alignment with them, you find a strength and a stability and a way of life so unlike anything the world has ever known, it inevitably changes you and the world around you. And the devil can't take you down. The world can't take you down. And so as we listen to this sermon, recognize this, that if you hear these things and you ignore them, then we have problems because now you're standing against the Messiah. You're standing outside of what he calls us to. But if we hear these things and we bring our life into alignment with them, we can draw an amazing amount of power and hope through them. So I encourage you, it's on your connection card, it's on that, that green card, it's on the very top. Take that with you this week. Start to think about it, pray about it, ask God, how am I following what you want? Because I'll tell you this, we are not going to change the world of our own power, right? Where there's not going to be a revolution where Christians pick up guns or, or, or anything like this. We go through and force a change of people's human hearts. We've tried that lots of times in history. Does it ever work? We're not going to do a cultural revolution where Christians own all of the businesses and we're able to impose our ideals upon other people and force them into conformity, like putting a cage around the evil on the outside and somehow make a difference. We've tried that. It doesn't work. There's a different way of living. There's a different revolution that God's calling us to. This is the challenge. This is the so what. And so we want to begin with that. If you're not ready to bring your life into conformity with God's will, with what Jesus is doing, then I would encourage you not to stay. Because then now you're going to be standing against him, and I don't want to do that to you. But if you really are serious about being a follower of Jesus, to say, I'm sick and tired of the way the world is, I'm, I'm done with the brokenness, I'm done with the injustice, I'm done with the godlessness, I'm done with those things, and I'm really, really ready to see God to do his work in amongst us, to have his kingdom come and his will be done, well then, you're going to be really excited about what we're going to cover today. And so what if you to turn to with me to Matthew chapter 5, because the Sermon on the Mount begins there, so it's a good place to start. It goes from chapter 5 to 7, but don't worry, we're not going to go through all of it today. We've got 12 weeks. Now, this was a gospel that was written by Matthew, also known as Levi. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were the enemies of the Jewish people, traitors. They worked for the Roman government, brought money from their own people, often ripped them off in order to put money into this pagan Roman government who had all these other gods and were uh, Hellenizing the world. And if those of you who went to Israel, you saw some of the, the cities that were there, the Decapolis cities that were there, and how awful they were. They had, they had pagan shrines everywhere. The worst things I, you could see in there is where they would have uh, these, uh, right in the downtown area, right on Main Street, where they'd have whorehouses, and, and, and they would have places in the gutter where they would just throw their babies out. It was, it was a broken, awful culture. And so if you were a tax collector, you were, you were forcing your countrymen to pay into that. And God took this man who was an enemy of his people, who was working in contradiction to God's ways, and calls him out to a different way of life. And then he ends up writing this. And he records the greatest message that Jesus is, that we've ever gotten. 
And, uh, and the, the point of Matthew, if you read it, Matthew really, because God chose Matthew and inspired him through the Holy Spirit to write this gospel. What was really on Matthew's heart, Levi's heart, that Jesus is the Messiah. That, that, that the king of Israel actually showed up. That the Savior had come. And that was worthy enough for him to leave his tax booth and all the money and the, those things and to stop being an enemy of his people and start being a servant of God. It marked him so much that God, that that's, if you read the Gospel of Matthew and by the end of it, you don't understand how Jesus is the Messiah, you need to read it again because you missed something. Big, that's the main point. That's what we should also see when we, also, when we read the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's why it's there. So let me give you the setting of it. This is a blurry picture of the, the, the <laughs> Mount of Beatitudes. And uh, that is, it's in Israel, it's on the northern coast of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, just south of where Nazareth is, where you would go from um, Nazareth into, into the, the uh, Sea of Galilee area. And it's kind of a, a space that's kind of a quiet space um, between the different cities. It's beautiful. And we know for absolute certain that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount here. That's why it's called the, the, the Mount of the Beatitudes, right? Uh, that's the church there. It's built over the top, not where the, the sermon was given, but on the top of the hill. And Jesus, you'll notice, it's a quiet place. It's also known as uh, Mount Aramaeus, which in, uh, means in Greek, it just means solitary or secluded. Now, Jesus brought his followers out to this place to bring the declaration of the kingdom, right? And uh, here's another picture, another blurry one, but I wanted to give this one because uh, you can see the hill, like where the people are sitting. They would sit down to, to learn, right? And Jesus would have sat, and it would be like a natural amphitheater. It's pretty cool because if you were near the bottom there and you could talk in a regular voice and the people on the hill can hear you. And he would have thousands of people on this hill as he was giving this message, and look at what they could see. They could see the Sea of Galilee. They could see all the cities around it perched on the hills. They were in nature, and you're going to see a lot of those illustrations in the midst of this message, which is why I wanted to show you that, because it showed me something, that Jesus is a God of reality, and he's a God of our present. Like he, He's not a God of just philosophy or great ideas. He actually brought doctrine into our real world in a way that we could understand. And as we go through this, when he talks about consider the lilies, or he talks about the cities on the hill, he was pointing out to his people, see those? Because he wanted the kingdom of God to be relevant in the people's lives. Hold on to that. Because this is important. <laughs> we'll come back to it. Now, why would he come here into this place away from all the cities? Well, we find that, that, there was a, that Jesus uh, started his ministry not much before this. That he'd been going around this entire region and he'd been preaching. In fact, chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee. That's a region. It's not a town. It's a, it's a region. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. This was at the very start of his ministry. He, he was baptized. The Holy Spirit showed up. God the Father said, this is my son. I'm well pleased. He goes out into the desert. He, he gets tempted for 40 days. He beats the devil's temptation. He comes back. And what's the first thing he does is he starts in his home region. And he proclaims the kingdom of God. And he goes to these places that he demonstrates the power of God by healing people and doing miracles. And they recognize through both the message and the miracles that he was something special. He wasn't just like anybody else. He was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And they were expecting Messiah sometimes like the one I want, who's going to come in power, who's going to be a bully to the bullies, right? Who's just going to destroy all the wicked people. 
And they were excited about this. And the Jewish people were so ready for this, they had many false messiahs who came before Jesus and after Jesus even, who rallied the people to take up arms and to go against the Romans and to try to, to conquer them. And so they we were expecting this revolutionary like this. And so Jesus does what a lot of revolutionaries would do. You don't start a revolution in the middle of town where the Romans can listen in. He takes them to the wilderness. He takes them outside of town where they're quiet, where he can have a private conversation with them to launch his kingdom. And so we find in verse 25, it says, large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's all those Greek cities, right? Jerusalem and Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. They came from all over and they were ready. They were fed up with the way of the Roman world because it was awful. They were so pagan. It was so godless. It was so evil and wicked and corrupt. They were done with it, and they were ready to put their lives on the line and to finally have a revolution. And so they begin to follow Jesus, and he takes them out to this quiet place, sits them on the hill, and then we read chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, this was not what the crowd expected. This was a whole different kind of message. You would have expected Jesus, this Messiah, to say, are you done with the Romans? Are you done with this broken society? Take up arms, my brothers and sisters. God is on our side. Let's go and, and cleanse this land with blood. But that's not what he said. This was important for me, especially this week, because we had a uh, revival and I was really hoping that the Holy Spirit would just come and then just burn away all of the wickedness in our culture. Because <laughs> I'm a man of optimism. <laughs> and I was ready for this kind of change. But when I go back to the, this message, I remember that God has something so much bigger in store. And the crowd was like me, it was ready they had blood in their eyes. They were ready for a revolution so deeply. And they wanted God to move so badly. But in the sermon, God gives a different kind of manifesto. And it's not what they were expecting. It's not what we were expecting. It's what we need. It's something so much bigger, so much more holy, so much more powerful. And so we need to make sure that we listen. Now in this, he begins with eight Beatitudes. It's important to know this. What are Beatitudes? It's a way that, of teaching. 
uh, that we see in the Psalms and the, and the moralists would do this. It's a blessed are something um, because you'll get this blessing, right? So you have this characteristic of this blessing. You see it in the Psalms from the proper, um, prophets, but Jesus begins with eight. Why eight? Because that's Jesus' number. You have seven is the number of creation. Eight is the day after that. It's the new creation. It's, you have seven is, is God's completion, his perfection in this world. Eight comes right next. It's the new creation. That's why we have eight. It's a pretty good thing. Jesus, who is brilliant, didn't miss this. It, we have seven, which was the completed covenant. Eight is a new covenant, which he is installing. That's why we find that so many times in Scripture, you get to that eight, it's the exciting thing. It's the new creation. It's, it's where we have the, the better hope. Aren't you glad that we have so much more hope than just this creation, this world? So he begins with eight. How do we know it's eight? Well, because uh, how it begins and ends, right? Uh, there was parentheses in it. If you had a, a repeat, it was kind of like a bracket. So if it was the same promise at the beginning and the last one, that the first one and the last one, there was kind of a bracket and said, these are the blessings that are in there. So there's eight of them. And what is the blessing for that? Well, let's go through uh, the first beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you look at the last beatitude, it's also, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he begins and ends and says the kingdom of God dwells within this space. These are the parameters of the kingdom of God. And everything else falls within that. And if you want to be inside the kingdom of God, then there are something there. There's in that bracket, we want to make sure we find ourselves. But they're not the things that we would expect. He begins with this, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the opposite of what you would expect for a, a Messiah. See, they were thinking the, the, the messianic revolution was those who were rich in spirit against those who were poor in spirit, against those who were spiritually depraved, like those Romans who were doing all kinds of, of crazy things, that they would have you know, their, their orgies, and they would have their drunkenness, and they would have all of their, their debauchery and their violence. And those are the ones that were poor in spirit, right? And you would think that those who are rich in spirit would be those on the side of the Messiah, those on the side of God. They're not the ones who are needy. Those are the ones who are finally fed up with those who are weak and poor in spirit. That's why we need a revival. We're tired of being, uh, having a tyranny of the weak. And yet, Jesus says something different. He says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, it's only for those who are poor in spirit. Now, if you want to understand the, the Sermon on the Mount, you have to understand it in context of everything else that Jesus taught, right? I've heard this Sermon on the Mount used to justify both legalism, people poking out eyes and all that kind of stuff, as well as grace abuse. Don't judge anybody. You've got a plank in your own eye. Don't judge or else you're going to be judged, right? They, they use these passages out of context and have bad doctrine. If we want to understand this, we need to understand the context of everything that Jesus taught, we understand that the poor in spirit, Jesus said he came to seek and save those who are lost. That Jesus came for those who knew they were spiritually sick. So the kingdom of God is not built by the proud and the strong. It's built by God. And if you want to be in the kingdom of God, we have to recognize first how far short I fall. Not the world, how far short it falls. How far short I fall. And God answered this prayer for me this last week because as I was praying in, in anticipation of the revival, I know that repentance comes before revival. And so I asked God a very silly and dangerous <laughs> prayer. I said, Lord, show me how depraved and how poor in spirit I am. And last week was the worst week I have ever had. The week before it, too. 
I mean, God was showing me I'm basically a scumbag. I, I was, like, it was awful. But I'm grateful for it now because I had this moment. The reason I wanted violence in this world, the reason I wanted to just destroy the wicked in this world because I somehow thought I had some spiritual wealth. I wasn't needy with God. I was, I was strong in God, and therefore I was better than those horrible sinners. How much I needed to be taken down that was, was remarkable to me. That God reminded me that I don't bring his kingdom because of my righteousness, but his kingdom comes because of his righteousness. That, that I'm in this kingdom not because I'm so good, but because God is so good. That we can't enter the kingdom until we first bend a knee and say, God, I am nothing to bring, but you have everything. Are you poor in spirit? Are you broken like the world? Are you done judging the rest of culture? Are you ready for God to do an inventory of your own heart and life and show you that he loves you, not because of what you do, but because of who he is? You can't understand anything else until we start with this. The kingdom of God is not for the proud. It's not for the rich or the mighty. It's for those who first recognize how completely depraved we are. Because if we don't get this, we're going to wish the wrong things in the, this world. We're going to treat the world completely wrong. We're going to have a, a level of, of vengeance in our spirit that turns to hatred and murder, which Jesus gets to later on. It's not becoming of his kingdom. So he tells his first, his followers, you're looking for the wrong kind of Messiah, guys. You, you want to be the ones who are powerful. You want to be the ones who just dominate and put your, your foot on the throat of of the Romans and all those other sinners. You need to understand first that we deserve God's foot on the throat of our necks. And yet, we have mercy instead. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you're poor in spirit, here's the blessing. God's kingdom is yours. He goes next. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. <laughs> Wait a second. That's the whole reason we want a revival. I'm tired of mourning. You know that I stopped watching the news. I can't even read it anymore because a bunch of liars. They tell you lies all the time, and they just made me mad. I was being manipulated to be angry and hate my neighbors. That's why I can't do it, right? And the world is so broken, and I was somehow flabbergasted that we wicked people did wicked things. I was like, I can't believe politicians would be corrupt. I can't believe that people would be run by greed and money and stuff. Be I mean, what? But it caused me to hate other people. And it grieved me deeply. And I wanted a revolution so I would have that pain stop. That's why you want a revolution. So we stop mourning. But Jesus says, no. You want to be on the side of the mourners right now. It's okay to see that, that the world is broken. Do you know that this world breaks God's heart? There is a reason he doesn't bring lightning every single time there's a pride parade. There's a reason he doesn't bring lightning every single time I betray him. Our God is a merciful God. He has a much greater kingdom. And part of this is if you're going to follow him, your heart's going to be with him and it's going to hurt. Are you ready to have that kind of pain? Because... It's going to be there. And I know so many brothers and sisters who have walked away and have a lukewarm faith because they're tired of hurting. They're tired of being at, at this tension. There's a dissonance between their heart and the way of the world, and they can't handle it anymore. And so they compromise. 
and try to just live like the world and say, well, I, I'm going to believe in God, but, I'm, but I just can't handle the brokenness anymore. And that's why they do it, because the mourning is just too much. It's just too hard. But Jesus said, if you're going to be in this revolution, if you're going to be in my kingdom, because inside the brackets, you're in the kingdom, you're going to mourn. This world's not going to feel right to you. It's going to feel like a shoe that's three sizes too small. It's not going to be comfortable while you're here now. You're going to feel like an alien in a foreign country. And if you feel that way, good for you. Because get this, there is a country coming where you're not going to feel that way anymore. That God is building a kingdom for us. We just need to wait for it. We will be comforted. The pain and the grief and, and all of the difficulty and the suffering, it's going to not last forever. But you have to stand with Christ now. You have to be willing to suffer with him. You have to be willing to say the things of this world grieve my heart too. He goes on, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. Now the revolutionaries, the messianic followers thought, I'm going to pick up a sword like the Maccabees did and we're not going to be meek. We're going to be strong and we're going to slice down those dirty Romans and the tax collectors and the nasty people who don't honor God and it's going to be great. Right? And we're going to put them under our thumb and we're going to see them squirm for a little while. And we're going to be in power finally. Right, The policies of this world, the governments of this world, the, the cultures of this world will be so godly that, that there are going to be uh, no problems for us. There's only going to be problems for the godless. It's going to be hard to be godless in that place. We're going to be strong. And Jesus said, wait, it's not for those who want to pick up a sword and have that kind of revolution. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. And he says, you're going to have to have your strength under God's control. You're going to have to be strong. But you can't just run wild. This is not our kingdom to advance under our ways, under our understanding. But get this. They were looking for a kingdom that would just really much kick out the Romans. That's, that's the extent of their, their picture in their mind. They had it in their head that when the Messiah came, he would make Israel super strong again, and then all the rest of the Gentiles would be, you know, have to bend a knee and pay them money and all that kind of stuff, but the Gentiles, they're not going to be part of the kingdom. They don't get that. There'd be parts of the world that wouldn't be under the flag of Israel. And Jesus said, you're thinking too small. God's kingdom is for the meek, not those who pick up arms, not those who have armies, but for the meek. But you're not just going to have a land. You're not just going to have a promised land. The entire earth and everything therein is going to be under the banner of this kingdom, and you're going to have it. So we're patient. And we wait. And the promise is victory. That's pretty good. But not how we would do it. He goes on. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. And again, the expectation is when the Messiah comes, we don't have to hunger and thirst for righteousness anymore. I mean, that's, that's the problem. Don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness now? I mean, hunger for something is what you don't have. I'm only hungry when I don't have food. I'm only thirsty when I don't have enough water. When I'm already satiated, I don't have those things. But, but to live with the, the hunger and thirst for righteousness, another word for righteousness is justice. Do you see the injustice of this world? Does it gnaw at your soul like like you've been on a fast. Do you feel in this world there is just no righteousness to be had? Are you parched? Because that's how I feel. 
That's why this world drives me nuts so much is that I'm so uncomfortable. And so when I thought the Messiah would come, he would finally satiate us with righteousness. There would be justice from hilltop to hilltop. And Jesus said, that will happen. You will be filled. But right now, in his kingdom, are going to be those who recognize the world leaves us wanting. And I think everybody understands the world leaves us wanting. I've never met a truly content person about all of us. If you're outside of the church trying to find contentment and, and wealth and in prosperity and, and it with he, uh, your health or with popularity or fame or all those things, it's never going to be enough. Right? It's like that the song of Fiddler on the Roof. How much is enough? A little bit more, right? But the world is completely discontent. There's never enough pleasure to fill the vacuous void in our soul. But if you are a Christian, you're also discontent. I'm so glad that heaven is not going to be like this earth. That's why I, so I can't watch the news. That's why it so breaks my heart. I see culture and it makes me so mad and so sad at the same time as I hunger and thirst for God's kingdom, his righteousness to finally reign. And he says, you know, that's where we need to be. And if you're going to be in his kingdom, there's going to be a time where it's, you're going to have to follow and be part of this kingdom and you're going to hunger and you're going to thirst for this. You're not going to have it satiated yet. But the promise is, is that it will. That the kingdom that God is bringing is going to have that happen, but it's not going to be like this instant revolution where we pick up arms and politically change things or culturally just change things. We have to be willing to hunger and thirst. And here's the deal. You're going to hunger and thirst for something. Might as well be for righteousness. Matthew 5, 7, it goes on, blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. That drives me nuts. This is my least favorite one in the whole thing. I because I'm an evil person. Like God showed me last week, I'm just an evil person. Like I want for my enemies the last thing I would ever want for myself. Right? That's how bad I am. I want God to come in power. Right? I want, I want the Lion of Judah to finally roar and to scare away all of the people who mock him. Right? It just drives me nuts when they mock God. But he said, you know what? You've got to be merciful. It's not going and showing vengeance. This is what our spirit wants. This is what our flesh wants. I want so badly just to take it out on the bad people, right? But God said that's not the way his kingdom is. It's a different kind of revolution. It's not like the Marxist revolutions where you line people up and just gun them down. The, all those who stand opposed to you. It's not a kingdom that's advanced by fear. It's not a kingdom that's advanced by violence at all. Now, I want you to understand, this is just a revolutionary idea for those who are listening to Jesus the first time. They're sitting on the hill and probably thinking to themselves, what are we doing here? It's like, merciful to the Romans? They're raping my sisters and mothers and daughters. They're, they're taking our homes. They're burning things down. They're murdering us with absolutely, there's, there's nothing that's just coming against them. But we wonder, where is God? I'm going to show them mercy? Yeah. Because I'm so spiritually poor. And the kingdom of God, is a, it requires mercy. I would never be in it if God wasn't a merciful God. And he says his kingdom is going to operate in a different way. And we know what? We saw this play out in AD 67 through 70. Where the Jewish people finally got fed up with the Romans. And they said, you know what we're going to do is we're going to have a revolution with not mercy, with violence. 
And they did for a couple years. They kicked the Romans out for a short time. But eventually the Romans came and brought their armies and slaughtered so many. Killed everybody in Jerusalem. Had so many crucifix uh, all the way up the, from, the, from Jerusalem all the way to Damascus. They crucified the, the people who lived in Jerusalem. There used to be forests around there. If you go there now, there's not forests because they cut down all the trees. And they, in fact, they had so many people, they could crucify them all. Then they brought them over to Egypt and tried to sell them to the Jewish people as slaves, but there were so many, it flooded the market. And people, you could buy like 10 slaves for hardly any money. Like it was, it was bad. See, the kingdom of God is not going to be blessed by violence. It's not going to proceed that way. It's not the type of revolution that people normally bring in. And he says, if you want to follow me on this hill, you're not going to pick up your sword. You're going to show mercy. Now get this, though. The nice part of that is we'll be shown mercy. It's a whole different way of being. First, we get mercy by God and each other, but also the rest of the world. You know, when we stop being a threat, we stop being threatening. But they don't know how big of a threat we really are. It's a whole different kind of war. So we have to be merciful to not give the world what it deserves because God doesn't give me what I deserve and I don't want him to. And isn't it great that if you're in the kingdom of God inside the bracket, God doesn't give you what you deserve? And if you wonder, wonder, if you're sitting here thinking that you're so holy, just do what I did last week and ask God to show you your brokenness and be ready for a really awful week. Next verse, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Not this, the, the idea was the, the messianic expectation was cultural purity. It had to do with other people. They thought, I'm right. I'm on the side of God, right? And because of that, uh, you know, we're going to bring about this, this revolution and we're going to have the temple. It's going to be, uh, you know, set free again. And we're going to see God's kingdom installed again. And all I need to do is for God to change and to kill all the bad people and to change the rest of the people's hearts. But Jesus brings it close to home. And he says, it's not about the other people. It's about you. Is your heart pure? Right? Is it not divided? It is not contaminated by the brokenness of this world. And not one person listening to Jesus could honestly say, I am perfect. Which is why we need to take this sermon in context of the rest of Jesus' teaching. I'm not going to earn my righteousness. I'm not going to make myself pure. I can't pay for my sins. That's why Jesus came. But if you allow yourself to follow him, if you're in the kingdom, guess what God does for you? He's going to purify your heart. He's going to sanctify you from the inside out, not on the, from the outside in by culture trying to change you and restrain how you act, but by changing who you are at a very deep and fundamental level. And the result of that is what, what the cry of the heart was, is they're going to see God. This is what we call glorification. I mean, even, the, the, even the, the, the best people in Israel were like, we're not going to see God. Only Moses got to see God, and he came back with like a shiny face, and everybody was afraid of him. But now God said that he's going to purify us to the point that we can do what the angels can't even do. They cover their, their, their eyes with wings so they, so they do not see or appear upon the holy, holy, holy God. And we're going to get to see him face to face. You're going to be glorified, sanctified, changed, thoroughly pure. That's part of being inside the kingdom of God, and that does not happen by murdering other people. Mm. But we'll get to see God. Not just to see his temple, not just to see the smoke coming up from the offerings, but to be welcomed into the holiest of holy spaces. 
not just to witness the cloud of God's glory, but to see God. The promise is unbelievable. And he goes on and he says, and blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. And this, if, if anybody still had doubt as to the nature of the Christ's revolution, uh, as to how it was going to be enacted, this one really set it to, to rest. It is not blessed are the warmongers. Blessed are though the, the powerful warlords who go on behalf of the Lord and stomp down the brokenness of the enemy. That didn't work. But the peacemakers, those who resolve the conflict, those who bring a sense of, uh, of, of harmony back into this world in the midst of all of its dissonance. Somebody's got to start the peace. And Jesus said, blessed are you because, get this, you'll be called children of God. Now their expectation was you'd be called God's children once you killed all of the bad guys and everyone know how strong God is. The Romans were all dead. It's clear how strong God is. Right? And we would say, the Lord God Almighty, and he destroyed all of these, these big empires in the past, and look how strong he is, and so therefore the Lord is, and we're his children. Well, actually, we're just part of his nation, but God brings it closer. He says he doesn't want you just to be citizens of his kingdom. He wants you to be family, and there's a character to his family that God is a God that makes peace. Now, we see later how he did that, not by excusing evil, but by undoing it. He paid the penalty for all of the wickedness in his own body by dying on our behalf on the cross so that we could have peace with God. And he sends us out not with a sword, but with a message known as the good news, not the bad news of God's wrath, but the good news of God's grace. And as we do this, the world will begin to see us as something wholly different, not as the threat, but as God's own children as his family, as his emissaries, as, as those who welcoming those from the outside who are at war with God, those who are at enemies with God, giving an opportunity to be at peace with God, adopted into his own home. And so we have in this the validation of faith. Wouldn't it be nice, and there's a day coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, right, to the glory of God the Father. And that's going to be a great day of validation. Even the hardest atheists and the, the most awful, you know, God-haters are going to bend their knee. Even the devil himself is going to bend his knee and say, nope, God was right. The Christians were right, right? The, the scorning tongues will be silenced. There's going to be vindication. But that's God's work for us. Even now, our job is not to go to God's enemy with destruction, but to go to them with a message of peace. And in this it's going to validate our faith. Now he goes on to verse 10. He said, Blessed are those who persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the end of the bracket. All those other things fit inside of God's kingdom. And guess what? If you're going to be in God's kingdom, it's very different than the cultural revolution that they were expecting. Because when you do the cultural revolution, so you're no longer persecuted, the Jews were very familiar with being persecuted for their faith. And they were ready for a Messiah because they were ready for that to be undone. They're ready for God to come in power. They're ready for the persecution to end, for them to be on the winning side, the side with great power and authority. And so the enemies of God would scamper in fear, right? And, and they would no longer be persecuted. They would be able to persecute the enemies of God, finally. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. In this parentheses, in my kingdom right now, you're going to be persecuted. This is not the end of your persecution. This is the beginning. But be persecuted not because of your own wickedness, not because of doing things the way the world does, but because of righteousness. There's going to be inherent injustice, systemic injustice in this world. It will be there. Don't be surprised by it. 
But you can be happy when it happens because you know you're on the right side. So the world doesn't reject us because of who we are. It rejects us because of who Jesus is. I have family members who do not like me. I'm the white sheep in the family sometimes. And they do not like me. And I know the reason is not personal. Because they would like me very much if I would just renounce Jesus or put him in the closet some way or just, uh, you know, start to follow the way they like to do things. But because I sat to stand with Christ, I make them very uncomfortable. And so there is a, a pain to it. There is a rejection to it. It's hard. But I know this, I'm standing with my eternal family. And I know this, that how would they ever see the kingdom of God if they don't first see it in me? And their problem was with Jesus and not me. And Jesus loves them more than I do. And if he faced rejection by his own father on my behalf, can I face rejection from some of my own family members on his for their good? So you'll be persecuted. The world's not going to understand you. Government's not going to understand you. Culture's not going to understand you. We should not expect that. We live according to a different kingdom. It's a different way. But get this. If you are persecuted for Jesus, you know that you're in the kingdom. And that, that Jesus showed that there was a difference between his first coming, inauguration of the kingdom, and his second coming. We read that in the rest of the Gospels. That there is a day coming that, the, that his kingdom will come in power. And all of those things are our hopes and our longings will happen. But not right now. And so, are you facing rejection by people you love? By the world that you love? Are, are you facing rejection because your faith in Jesus? Because of how you choose to stand with him that's at odds with the way the world is? That your values are at odds with the way of this world? Be glad. In fact, Jesus goes on to give this last one a little further explanation. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when this happens, we recognize that the, the kingdom that we want is not a kingdom of this earth. It's a kingdom that's from above. It's not a kingdom that is just right now, but it's the kingdom of eternity. And when we are, we are persecuted and we suffer for the kingdom of God, he goes a step further. He doesn't just let us into that kingdom, but he actually rewards us. It's like you win the heavenly lottery. So stay strong. Scott, God's rejection. He's not being cruel to you. There's a day coming you'll say, thank you, Lord, that you allowed me to suffer on your behalf. The apostles actually did that later in their ministry after Jesus died and rose again. And the, even the religious leaders beat them with rods and say, don't talk about Jesus. And they're like, should we obey God or you? And then after they left, after having a horrible whipping, they go out praising God because they were counted worthy to suffer for him. Now, Christians aren't masochists. It's not like we enjoy being beat with rods. We enjoy the honor of standing with the Lord. We can be happy knowing that we are part of his big kingdom, that we passed the test, that we're, we're there, we're actually his followers. And I want you to know this, that God rewards it. And he elevates us to the same level of the prophets. That's an amazing thing for me. That's a humbling thing. And so we get to the end of this, uh, the, the Beatitudes. And the reason Jesus starts with the Beatitudes is he needs to set the framework for this revolution. He needs his followers to understand that this is not going to be a worldly thing. It's not like anything that ever came before. And I want you to hear that. I needed to hear that. that. That the revolution that Jesus has called us to is very different than the kind of revolutions we see in the world. The ones that we long for, we think we long for, but they're powerless. What cultural revolution has ever lasted more than a generation? Maybe two. 
Jesus is changing eternity. It, it, he's doing something much bigger. He's doing something that's, gonna, that's going to be so profound, it's not just going to be for a geographical region or for a special few, but it's going to have his glory over the entire world and beyond. So he wants us to make sure that we have our expectations right. If you're going to follow him, there are going to be some keys to this kingdom that we need to understand. And the first one that you see in here is that the God's kingdom is personal before it's political. Understand that. Because we, as people, think the other way around. We think if we can change culture, if we can change policy, if we can change politics, if we can force God's kingdom from the outside in, and then we'll have this great revolution. That's what we put our hope in. And it's not that it's wrong that we want to have godly you know, people in, in charge and culture to be more godly. And all. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, uh, that, that's a good thing, that God is going to bring about a change in culture, and he has throughout time. But it doesn't come from a top-down approach. It has to be personal. Now, Jesus came to save people, not powers. We have to understand that. He loves you. And personal revival always precedes cultural revolution. So if you want to save the world, let God save you first. It has to begin here. If there's not a revolution of your soul or of your heart, you have no place in the kingdom. And you will not see God's revolution happen. You're not going to be part of it. You're outside the brackets. But if you let God in... Well, the kingdom of God is a powerful thing. And it won't be just stay there. The kingdom of God can't be contained to your spirit. And so the kingdom of God is this too. It's open to people, not groups. It's not as though like groups, a revolution is, you know, they would say, we're going to save Israel and all the people who fought and who didn't. This is, we're going to be part of this, this new kingdom of God where we're going to be with the Messiah. No. The kingdom of God is open to anybody who is willing to, to accept the terms of the kingdom. He came to save you. You're not going to be saved because you were part of uh, the American church or because you're part of a Christian family even. We, we don't get into the kingdom you know, on the coattails of anybody else or by our association with anybody else. The kingdom of God starts personally and it is filled with people whom God loves. And so if you want to be part of a cultural revolution, you're in the wrong place. If you're ready to have a soul revived, you are in the right place. But here's the cool thing. As God revives more and more and more souls, guess what happens? Culture changes. And we've seen that throughout history. We saw Rome itself topple. We've seen the Western world bring the, the light of the gospel for thousands of years over all the continents, bringing the gospel to every spoken language. It's a powerful thing. But it doesn't grow by kings. It doesn't grow by warlords or generals. It grows by God the king of kings, transforming our hearts. Second thing we need to understand is that God's kingdom requires faith and faithfulness. It's not power. It's not strategy. It's not as though we have to come up with the most brilliant way in order to, to undo the, the wiles of the devil. He's smarter than us, and he's, he's got a lot of power. God's more powerful and smarter than the devil. He doesn't call for us to have nifty ideas. He calls for us to trust him. Right? You can't earn his kingdom, but you're going to suffer for it. If you're in God's kingdom, you're going to suffer. And why would you be willing to suffer injustice and to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be poor in spirit and to, to let all kinds of be persecuted and let people say all kinds of false things about you and yet not retaliate but be a peacemaker? Why on earth would you do that? It makes no sense if your hope is in this world. You have to have faith. The kingdom of God is only open to those who are going to trust God because the test is not so much how strong you are, how good you are. The test is how faithful to God you are because he wants your heart. He wants you. 
And so he allows us to go through these. And the scriptures teach us, Jesus teaches us, we have to keep it all in context, that through trials and difficulty and persecutions and pain, that God is not abandoning us in those, but he's purifying us through those very things. He's, he's honing ourselves so that we would love God more than everything, right? So that proving to ourselves that we will choose God and his kingdom and his righteousness above all else. You, if you want to be in God's kingdom, you have to live it by faith and faithfulness, not by your best understanding or by your own works, but just trust God and do what he asks. Perfectly? No, but be faithful. Love him. And the rewards aren't going to be immediate. That's part of the plan. Right? If they were immediate, people would join the kingdom not because of who God is, but because what they could just get out of them, like a slot machine. You know, ching, oh, I won. That's not how it works. The rewards are to know God. And then he'll bring us glory. The last thing is this, is that the kingdom of God is worth it. What good would it have been if Jesus was another revolutionary just like the rest? And he just brought about another political revolution in Israel. Did you read the Old Testament? Anybody read the Old Testament? It's a yo-yo, right? We love God. We hate God. We love God. We hate God. We love God. We hate God. We're good. We're bad. We're good. We're bad. We're good. We're bad. It's awful. God came to take us off that crazy thing. It's, there's a different way. There's eternal kingdom coming, and it's worth it. You're going to suffer for following Jesus. It's going to be hard to follow Jesus. There are going to be things in your life you do not understand. You're going to have to sacrifice your will to follow the will of Jesus. You're going to have to do things that make no sense to you and make no sense earthly in this world. You're going to be ridiculed for them. You're going to have bad things done to you. You're going to be rejected for stuff you didn't even do. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, it's absolutely worth it. It is the only way to the kingdom that the heart truly longs for is the only way to see the actual glory of God. God's at work this way. And we can either build our kingdoms and ask God to come along, and he's not going to do that. Or we can say, this is what God's doing, and I'm going to follow him, which is why we are followers of Jesus. That's why we should never say God is with us. We should say we are with God. And if you're going to say that, you better mean it. But it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it. Look at the benefits of this. You get the kingdom of heaven, all of the earth, Right? You're going to be vindicated, comforted, sanctified, glorified, satisfied, and rewarded even for the ways we suffer for the good things that God does. There's no nation, no philosophy, no religion in this world that has a better offer. There's nothing in the world that will satisfy the soul like what Jesus offers. It's a revolution that is, that is unstoppable by the things of this world because it is not a kingdom of this world. And the best part is guaranteed because it's already a done deal. Jesus purchased us. He died on a cross for our sins, right? He, he paid for all the sins of all the world. He took all of the things that broke us and separated us from God, and he destroyed them so we could have access to God, freedom in his kingdom so we could be saved by God's grace through faith. He rose from the dead, demonstrating his power over the devil, demonstrating his power over death, demonstrating his power over sin, demonstrating his deity himself, that it's not an equal fight. It's not against God versus the devil, and there's an even cage match. God is the creator. The devil only exists because God wills him to exist. He wouldn't even have to unwill God. He would have to say, devil, I want to you to not exist anymore. He could just stop willing the devil to exist and poof, he'd be gone. Just like us, God is the creator of all things. It's a guaranteed done deal. And so we know this, and so it's worth it. It's not a maybe Jesus has overcome. He has overcome. And all of those things are coming. Just as Jesus came to this world to pay for sin, he's coming back. He is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so be patient, my brothers and sisters. 
be willing to suffer. But follow him. Know that it's worth it. Don't lose heart. So the things that, that we find in, the, in Beatitudes are this, that God's kingdom is, is personal before it's political. God's kingdom is, requires faith and faithfulness, and God's kingdom is worth it. You have to understand these things to understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, to understand the rest of Jesus' teaching. If you don't get the rest this, you're going to misunderstand the gospel. And a lot of churches have done that. A lot of Christians have done that to their own peril. We begin with this. So let God's kingdom be personal in you. Don't ask for him to save the rest of the world before you ask him to purify your own heart and your own life. Let him change you from the inside out, and then your good works and your good deeds will shine out from you, and then it will testify to the good deeds. Your testimony will be powerful, right? You'll be able to share with another person and another person and another person as we see people and families and society and culture changes. But if you want the change, it has to start here. If you want to see God's kingdom come, you have to be faithful, not your way. Let God do his thing, and you have to know what God's way is. That's why I encourage you. You have to come back for the rest of the summer. If you can't follow Jesus, if you don't know what he says and let's follow him together because it helps and be faithful and also don't give up it's worth it let's never lose sight of jesus let's never lose sight of the kingdom when we see his kingdom come his will be done it will be and it's starting right here so for you and for me as we begin this series what are some next steps that we can take to follow this to to recognize that god needs to do a personal work in our life that to live in faith and faithfulness to to believe in the worthiness of the call well it's on your connection card but i'll put them up here too because we can't stand still we need to follow after him the first thing i'm going to ask you to read matthew 5 through 7 why because that is the sermon on the mount and we're going to be going through it i want you to read the whole sermon on the mount in its context and why not read it? It's the greatest sermon ever preached, even better than this one today, if you can believe it. So why not read it? See what Jesus actually said. It's powerful stuff. And as you do, would you memorize Matthew 7, 24? Why? Because we're going to start meditating on this. It, to say, you know what, if you're going to be wise, you're going you're to build your life on the teachings of Christ. Not your own best idea, not your plans, but on God's plans. Let that word begin to transform your very thinking so that way you can see what God's plans are and recognize that God has called us to this. Let the word of God begin, but you, first I'm going to ask you to memorize that. And so on that connection card on the back side of it, you, you know, we have the memory verse there, but on the back side there's even a way, you know, the first letters of it helps you memorize it. To know God's word, put it into our heart. This is the way the kingdom of God is built, not with a sword, but by faith and faithfulness. And as we do that this week, maybe the challenge for you is to choose God's kingdom, not yours. I had to do that. Because I was really upset I, I, for the, the, um, the uh, revival. The first night, Amy will tell you, I came home and I was just grumpier. And I was so mad. So I was like, God, we prayed and we fasted and we did all the things and sanctified the church and did all this stuff. And where's the Holy Spirit? We don't serve a God that's like a, a rock or anything like that. Like, come and just like, come in power. Like, I was so disappointed. I was grumbling. And then, of course, the next sermon was on not to grumble. And I was convicted again of how awful I am. And I recognize that it's God's kingdom. He gets to build it however he wants. And I just need to be faithful. I'm going to trust him. The king of kings is still on the throne. He's still the lion of Judah, and he's still worthy. But I have to submit myself to him. I don't get to boss God around. He gets to tell me what to do. And he always tells me to do good things. Maybe that's where you are. If there's a thing in your life, if you've got sin and you know it, release it. If there's something that you disagree with God with right now, and you're saying, well, until he proves it to me, I'm not going to do things my way, well... I'm going to encourage you, don't live like that. Because I guarantee if you're disagreeing with God, I know which one of the two of you is wrong. So lay it down. 
Choose His kingdom and His righteousness above all else. See God's kingdom work in your heart and life. And then your heart's desire to see His purity and His goodness will start flowing from you, not from the outside world. So choose His kingdom. And something else I'm going to challenge you. This is going to be the hardest thing to make God a priority. The busiest time of the year is the summertime. I get that. But you know what God calls us to be is His family. We're called the assembly for a reason. You can't assemble alone. You ever notice that? So be here. Make this a step of faithfulness. You're saying, God, I don't even understand why coming to church is all that important. God says to do it. So just do it. Be here and call up your brothers and sisters who are missing and invite them back. Call them back into the kingdom. Call them back into faithfulness. Bring peace into their life again. Come back. Make a commitment even to your own life. I'm making a commitment to God, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy, but because God is worthy and He is worth it. Can you make that commitment? That's a challenge because you're worshiping Him with your very time, which I think is the hardest thing to worship God with. So center your life around God, but I guarantee it's worth it. And you're going to see God move and work in you in powerful ways. So let me invite you to do that. Those are my challenges for you. The gauntlet has been cast. I'll be here this summer. I'm choosing God's kingdom vulnerable to you guys as hard as it is for me to do it. I'm surrendering myself to God this year. I'm taking time to memorize his word and think how I'm going to obey him this week. I'm going to be reading the, this, the Sermon on the Mount this week. Would you join me? If you got a prayer request, write it down too because we would love to pray for you. Here in a moment, we're going to take our offering. We're going to take our offering, take these connection cards, put it in the offering basket as we pass. Right? Let this be also a point of worship for you and God. Let me pray for you before we take the offering. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the kingdom of God. Thank you that it's not our kingdom, but yours. Thank you that it's eternal, not temporary. Thank you that it's worth it in such a deep and profound, wonderful way. It's the only kingdom that satisfies. Help us today to have built faith closer to you. If there's anybody here right now that's struggling, God, may your Holy Spirit bring them comfort and courage to follow you and your kingdom, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your glory take these commitments and these offerings to build your kingdom in us and through us and for your glory. We pray all this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.